Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Thursday, July 1st, 2010. I'm Andrew Ronaldo at IATP in Minneapolis. In today's program, we talk with best-selling authors Francis and Anna LePay about the U.S. food system and its consequences for the environment. But first, Roger Doyron, IATP Food and Society Fellow, founder of Kitchen Gardeners International, describes a new campaign urging everyone to declare food independence this July 4th. Roger, can you tell us, uh, what is Food Independence Day? Food Independence Day is a campaign that I um, sort of started up. I want to give credit where credit is due and that the, the idea first came up here in Maine in a discussion that I was part of. It's something that a family farmer by the name of Ramona Snell came up with who sells a lot of her summer produce at, uh, at farmer's markets. And she was looking for an, a way of trying to make a connection with the July 4th holiday and said, you know, wouldn't it be neat if we could really promote uh, July 4th as Food Independence Day? And so I said, you know, that's a good idea and it needs to go you know, far beyond the borders of Maine. So uh, as of last year, I tried to turn it into a bit of a national campaign to get people thinking about not only our political independence, but other forms of independence, uh, such as food independence, and thinking about where our food comes from and trying to become more food independent, not only as individuals, but as communities. So that's really sort of how it got started, and we're doing different things in the, the framework of this, this little campaign to, to get people on board and excited about the idea, including a petition which is addressed to the first families uh, across the the nation. So this is more directed at the governors and their families to get them eating local foods on July 4th. But it's first and foremost a campaign that's directed at uh, at people just to get them thinking in terms of what their options are for eating more locally on July 4th. Why do you think uh, food independence is important for individuals or eating locally? What are the reasons... I think there's really a a long list of reasons, and it sort of depends on who you ask. I think there are people who are aware of the uh, economic implications of a a local foods economy. That's a a good thing to have more money circulating locally as opposed to sort of leaking out. And I think more and more there are people who are starting to make the connection between food independence and energy independence. That's going to be, you know, an issue that's simply not going to go away. And the, the fact that we have this you know, crisis going on in the Gulf now will perhaps make that um, a bit of an easier case for us to make that, you know, to the extent that our food is traveling, in some cases, thousands of miles to get to our, you know, July 4th picnic table, thinking about the fossil fuel implications of that, I think that's going to help a lot of people, you know, make that connection that it does make sense in terms of our energy independence to try to produce foods using fewer fossil fuels, less packaging, all that stuff. And then you have people who are coming to this issue more from a health perspective. 
and realizing that to the extent that we're eating fresher foods and foods that have fewer artificial ingredients, less processing, that that's a good thing for our physical health. So I think there, there are really a number of different reasons for people to get involved and to get excited about this. What has been the response so far from state governors and their first families? Well, here in Maine, uh, we have the, the good fortune of having a governor and a first lady that are completely on board with this. They were doing this, you know, I say, uh, way before it was cool. First Lady Karen Baldacci was actually feeding her own family out of their first garden, you know, well before the Obamas uh, were even a household name. So I know that here in Maine, they're, they're certainly doing that. And we're seeing, I think, a, a certain ripple effect across the country now where I've done some sort of informal polling to find out just how many governors and first families have gardens and are doing some of these things. And we're seeing more and more of it. It's a little bit difficult to, you know, to come up with a number in terms of the number of uh, first families that will be participating this year. Last year, we had about 10 first families submit their July 4th uh, menus to us. Uh, but I suspect that we're going to be seeing more and more people doing this over time. And it's a campaign that will take you know, a number of years, if not decades, to, mm-hmm. to really fully accomplish, and that we're talking about changing uh, the food culture of our country, which is, you know, a pretty big thing to, to work on. How can individuals get involved uh, in this campaign? I think the, the easiest way to get involved is to go to foodindependenceday.org and to see some of the different ways of getting involved. We've sort of streamlined our web presence this year. We have it up as a Facebook page, but even if you're not on Facebook, you can access the information on that page. If you're on Facebook, you can kind of take that information and easily share it with your Facebook friends. And we also have an interactive map. Um, Once again, whether or not you're on Facebook, you can access this map and you can add your own little marker to the map saying, you know what, you know, I'm going to do this. July 4th, I'm going to make sure that I'm serving as much local foods on our menu as possible. So those are some of the different things that you can do. And, you know, just be tuning in in your local community about some of the different local foods options and trying to work with some of the people who are already there on the ground to expand those options. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Ben. Declare your food independence at foodindependenceday.org. Eating locally is one way to minimize the effects of your diet on the environment. Forty years ago, when Frances Moore LePay wrote Diet for a Small Planet, she became one of the first advocates of eating a plant-centered diet both for health and for the planet. Now, her daughter Anna LePay has written Diet for a Hot Planet, addressing our food system's effect on the climate. What has changed over the past 40 years, and where are opportunities for improvement? Francis, tell us how you've seen the food system in the U.S. change since you first wrote Diet for a Small Planet. Well, the road has diverged on <laughs> two amazingly powerful pathways, and I, I think of it as my worst nightmare in some ways, to think that I'm now living in a world, it almost makes me start to cry, in which there are probably at least 125 million more hungry people in the world than when I wrote Diet for a Small Planet, and the destruction of agricultural resources, including the dead zones created by farm runoff and all the other horrors that we know, I could never have imagined 40 years ago. On one hand, and in the other pathway, oh my God, 
there's a land reform in Latin America that, you know, 40 years ago I would have thought absolutely impossible in Brazil, where people are now gaining access to farmland, in many cases growing organic, hunger is decreasing. Uh, we see in the United States the same dichotomy, you know, of absolute takeoff in food, food awareness and desire to eat healthy and to gain access for even the poorest people, and at the very same time we've turned food into our greatest health threat. So it's, it's this, how do we hold them both and make real choices? That, that's the picture of 40 years on this journey. It's a lot starker, the two paths, than, than they were. Oh, yeah, both are. I mean, I couldn't have imagined either the incredibly positive. I mean, you know, when I wrote Diet for Small Planet, people thought you're nuts to think you could live on a plant-centered diet. I mean, I did grow up in Fort Worth, Texas, near the stockyards, and certainly there it was total heresy. So the idea of really healthy eating centered in the plant world was absolute heresy. You know, organic was something that only kind of long-haired, frail-looking people indulged in, you know, and, and to, to see now that this is actually mainstream, that one can go into supermarkets, and I was just just in JFK Airport with a big sign that said uh, organic dough pizza, you know, I mean, so yes, the positive is so extraordinary, and, and at the same time, the concentration of control within our food system is beyond anything I could have feared, you know, uh, that I was trying to address in my work and have been. So it's the both and. Mm -hmm. So I just want to stress, I guess, that, that it's so stark that in some ways it's a lot easier to see the choices before us and that's really what I'm still struggling with how to help myself and others see just what are the powerful entry points to go to the root causes so that we don't live in this crazy world where things are getting so much worse just as we are having this breakthrough. Anna, maybe you could talk about how these changes in the food system have affected the climate and how the climate has affected the food system. Sure. So in, in my new book, Diet for a Hot Planet, I, I kind of take up the conversation that my mother started 40 years ago in Diet for a Small Planet. And I uh, talk about what I found really shocking, which was this discovery that there's this other huge hidden cost to how we've chosen as a, as a planet, really, but especially in the U.S., how we've chosen to grow our food, what kinds of foods we're growing, what we're doing with our food, and that additional hidden cost is the cost to our climate. So globally now, we're looking at our food system is indirectly and directly responsible for about one-third of all greenhouse gas emissions, and a majority of those emissions are coming from livestock production, and primarily because of our shift away from livestock being these sustainable members of a farm and toward livestock being uh, uh, abused and exploited um, members of, of factories where they have been taken off the land and they require enormous amounts of feed, uh, they require enormous amounts of water, and of course the energy to heat and cool and ventilate and then to process and package and ship that, that meat. And, uh, and that dairy as well. So in this exploration of mine into looking at this connection between food and climate, to me it's just, it's just a part of this much bigger story about what are the ecological consequences of this food system and what is, how is it affecting our planet, how is it affecting our bodies, and also uh, what is the alternative, you know, what would that alternative look like? And what was a really positive part of the food and climate story 
uh, for me to discover was that the same food system that all of us are advocating for that's good for our bodies, the, the organic foods and sustainably raised foods and, and, um, and local food, re-regionalized food systems, all of those things are also the kinds of foods that are uh, ultimately better for the planet. Francis, you've been writing recently about power and democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, how does that, how do those issues overlay over our food system? Well, I think of them rather than overlay, I think of sort of underpin. You know, if I've been kind of trying to peel away the layer after layer, I come to the question of power. Power is simply our capacity to act. It's not a dirty word. It's, it's what we evolved to be, you know, not couch potatoes and whiners, but doers, creators. So the only thing I, I can have come to is that if we had real voice, we meaning most people, we wouldn't invent a world in which, you know, abundant in food and yet, you know, hunger is afflicting over a billion of us. So I guess I came to by sometime in the 80s that Hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food or resources on the planet, but by a scarcity of democracy. In other words, a scarcity of the power of regular people to have a say. Because, as I say, if we all got together and talked about, oh, what would be a food system that would work for us all, we certainly wouldn't come up with one where, you know, in our own country, in our own country now, half of American children will live on food stamps at some point of their childhood. And we produce almost a quarter of world economic output. So, you know, I guess that's where I am. It's like, okay, hunger really is telling us that we still have to bring to life democracy as a core value, not as an instrument towards something else, but as a foundational value because everything else depends on it. And I mean by democracy, not just elections in Washington, but I mean uh, the decision making that will bring the community that we want and the national government that we want. Um, speaking of being disempowered, the, the BP oil spill is really causing enormous harm down there, but I think also really making people feeling awakening to the addiction to oil that this country is facing. And I'm wondering, do we have a food system that's also addicted to oil? And, and do you think that this is, could be an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that, Anna? I would love it <laughs> to be an opportunity to talk a bit more about that. We certainly aren't hearing that yet in the public conversation, but but absolutely, our food system uh, is absolutely addicted to oil. And it's interesting because I, I think that we 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 think of where where energy goes and what do we use energy for? What do we use oil for in this country? I think most of us probably our minds immediately go to cars and airplanes and trucks you know we sort of picture these we can we can see the gas going into the cart you know the the tank there and we rarely think about this much more invisible use of oil which is the oil on our fields uh, synthetic fertilizer which we now use in most farmland in this country uh, our corn crop, one of our biggest crops, is heavily, heavily uh, addicted uh, to, to synthetic fertilizer, and it's a huge user of natural gas resources. And then you look at all along the food chain, from the, the fertilizer needed to the petroleum-based uh, pesticides, petroleum-based chemicals used on the farm, to the equipment used on the farm, to then the packaging, the processing, the shipping, uh, and, uh, and all along the food chain, 
there is a requirement of, of oil. Uh, and so in many ways, we, we are eating oil with every bite of our food. And, and again, it doesn't have to be this way. When you look at the kinds of uh, ecological systems that are embedded in organic farming, that kind of oil addiction is, is much diminished to the point of almost, I've been to some farms that are completely energy independent, where they're powering the entire farm, either from the animals, from wind, or from solar, and completely remove themselves from that, uh, having that IV drip of oil onto the farm. You know, Anna, you were saying to me earlier, I just thought it was absolutely fascinating that while we are appropriately absolutely fixated on the disruption to sea life from the oil spill, that beneath the surface is destruction of sea life uh, that has been going on for a long time, which hasn't made the front pages of it. Right, right. So, and this is not at all to minimize the damage caused by the spill, by no means, but, but you're absolutely right. The, the agricultural runoff from farm fields in this country that ends up in the Gulf of Mexico every year swells on average to a size that's four times larger than the oil spill is right now. Uh, unfortunately, that oil spill is growing, so, so someday they might have parity in terms of size, but that... that uh, agricultural runoff that swells to that size, creating that dead zone. Essentially, it's creating algal blooms that uh, suck up all the oxygen in the ocean and uh, drive out all aquatic life or kill all aquatic life that remains and has absolutely decimated the fisheries, absolutely decimated shrimpers who rely on those, on a healthy ocean, a healthy ocean ecosystem. So uh, there's an absolute connection between these two stories. Learn more about the LaPay's work at www.smallplanet.org. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sai. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, Forgotten Language by Fort Wilson Riot, and hung out by Red Pens. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>